Well, today, as you know, is our Mission Sunday, and you've also heard that we have these twice a year. So I was doing a bit of mathematics, and I reckon this is probably around my 40th Mission Sunday here in Charlotte Chapel. And along with these Mission Sundays, we've had quite a few other occasions when missionaries have spoken about world mission. So if you add them all together, and if you're a regular worshipper here, or you're a visitor and you know the Bible well... I wonder what you think would be the most popular text to preach on, on an occasion like this, given the whole Bible. We won't take a vote on it, but I'm pretty sure, statistically, uh, the verses that have been most in focus over the years have been what we call the Great Commission. The words that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke uh, to his followers uh, before he returned to heaven. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What is a good choice about the followers of Jesus being sent out into the world, which is what the world word mission means, literally. Sent to the nations and people groups of our world. But there is a danger in starting here. For it may well create the assumption that the subject of mission in this book, the Bible, begins in the New Testament. It's purely a New Testament subject. And along with this is a more subtle danger into which we can fall. To think that mission starts with us. That mission is something that, first and foremost, we do. But what I want to share with you today, and what I think is true, and I've been thinking a lot about it and reading a lot about it recently, is that the subject of mission, rather than starting in the New Testament, begins much earlier in the Old Testament part of the Bible. It begins, as the Bible itself does, not with us, but with God. In the beginning, God. Uh, if you want a book to read on this, and you're a, you're a good reader, uh, then Dr. Chris Wright, who preached in the chapel, I was looking at the records, in 2002, uh, he was the principal of All Nations Christian College. He now runs the Langham International Trust, and he was one of the leaders at the Lausanne uh, Mission Conference that took place recently in Cape Town. He's written a huge book called The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. It runs to almost 600 pages, for those who want something to do over the Christmas period instead of watching useless films and repeats and things. Um, and uh, let me give you a quote from it, which gets the heart of it. He says, It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, as God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church... The church was made for mission, God's mission. And from this perspective, this big picture, the mission of God begins in Genesis with those opening words, with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, if you don't know the Bible, you skip through 66 books until you come to the last one, which is called Revelation. And you come right to the end of it, chapter 21, there is a new creation. Then I saw, says John, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And in between these kind of bookends of human history, despite all that seems to threaten and ruin God's plan, his mission, it culminates 
wonderfully in him sending his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross. So the scripture says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son to die for us and to accomplish the mission that we could never accomplish ourselves. And then, of course, the risen son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the first missionary, if you want, the greatest missionary, sends his followers into the world as missionaries, as sent ones, to fulfill the mission of God and sent his spirit to enable them to do this. And that's where the Great Commission, of course, is placed, right in the middle here. In the middle of the story, the story of salvation. And what I want to do today with God's help, and this is a two-part message, if you don't normally manage to come, if you don't normally come out in the evening, I hope you'll come to the second half because the second half brings it all to a glorious conclusion. The theme, I mean, not necessarily the sermon, hopefully. Uh, and uh, the two parts belong together. So let me tell you where we're going today, and then we'll we'll, we'll launch into our subject. Okay, this is kind of preliminary. Uh, we're going to look at the mission of God, the story of salvation. And what I want to do is begin at opposite ends of the story. So this morning I want to begin with beginnings, looking forward, and focus on the two chapters in Genesis that were read to us, two contrasting stories. And in particular, we're going to look at what it means to be a son of Abraham, and to ask, do I belong to these people? Uh, this evening, in part two, we'll go to the opposite end, and the book of Revelation, we're going to begin with some songs of great praise taken from Revelation 5 and 7 of that final great throng in heaven, and we're going to look back about how God brings this mission to completion. This is the end of the story, if you like, and some of the barriers we have to overcome if we're going to get there today, and to ask, am I, are we as a church involved in mission? the mission of God. And the focus of both of these things, looking forward, we'll look forward to the coming of Jesus this morning. And when we start this evening, we'll look back to the coming of Jesus, uh, dying on the cross, who is the focus of all worship uh, for all eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going to go this morning, Dave. That's great, Dave. And we need that in the middle there. And I hope what this will do will give us a bigger picture of mission. It's not just something for the enthusiasts in Charlotte Chapel that they're involved in. It's not just something that we focus on two Sundays of a year, although it's good to make a specific focus on that. It's what the whole story's about. And here's the wonderful thing. We are invited to be participants in the story, to be part of this wonderful narrative. So turn to your Bible. You will need a Bible. We're going to cover the whole of the Bible in two messages uh, today, so that will be quite uh, an undertaking, all right? So if you've got a Bible in front of you, uh, turn to Genesis 11 and 12, where we started, and let's begin with beginnings, looking forward. Now you'll notice I've used the plural word, beginnings, because the real beginning is before Genesis 11 and 12. In fact, it's before Genesis 1, because God has this mission plan in mind, planned in eternity to use a Bible phrase, before the foundation of the world. From a human perspective, the beginning is Genesis 1-1, when God creates the world and creates human beings as the crown of his creation, living in intimate relationship with him. In Genesis 3, this is a really quick overview, everything goes wrong as our first parents rebel against God, resulting in the severing of that relationship. But even here, if you read Genesis 3 carefully, even here in embryo, literally, 
God has a plan to sort it all out. He's not caught unawares by what happens. He promises one born of a woman will bruise Satan's head and bring ultimate victory. That lay far off into the future. In the meantime, the descendants of Adam and Eve, as you continue to read the story through the book of Genesis, multiply across it, carrying with them the virus of wickedness that they've inherited from Adam and Eve. So much so that you know the story. In the end, God is so grieved by their wickedness that he determines to wipe out the world and to send a flood which will eliminate humankind from the earth. But in judging many, God saves one man and his family, a man called Noah, who we read found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And instructed by God, Noah builds an ark with selected animal species and he's preserved from the disaster which wipes out humankind. So a fresh start is made. So we come to Genesis 9. We're almost getting to chapter 11 and 12. Just stay with me for a moment, okay? And when they emerge from the, from the ark, God gives his mission plan again to Noah. His covenant with Noah, his agreement with him. He said, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And when you come to Genesis 10, you'll see it says the table of nations. That's a picture of all the nations that eventually emerge from Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. But we discover, as we come to chapter 11, that the real problem has not yet been resolved. The problem of human nature, fallen human nature. So we come to the account of the tower, what's called the Tower of Babel, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. And if you want a subtitle for this, it would be The Height of Human Folly. Look at verses 3 and 4. Human beings congregated together in this one place say, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, bitumen, tar instead of mortar. They said, Let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And instead of following the divine mandate, you remember what God said to Noah? Multiply, scatter across the face of the earth. They congregate in one place. One writer says, whereas God wanted man to fill the earth, he seeks to congregate in one town, Babel. Now, Babel is located, we're told, in a place called Shina, which your Bible footnote, if you've got good eyesight, can read at the bottom in the NIV, tells you is in Babylonia. And there, using the crude materials at hand, they begin to build a tower, a town with a city, with a tower at its center, the Tower of Babel, in an attempt to reach up to heaven. If you do some study, you'll find that these kind of towers uh, are very well known. They're called, if you want the proper word, they're called ziggurats. Uh, they're in modern Iraq. Uh, and they're huge pyramid-like structures. And the worshippers kind of ascended the stairs to get up closer to heaven. So they thought... They were a central feature of Babylonian religion and the worship of various gods, especially the moon god and other heavenly deities. Indeed, the word in Babylonian, the word Babel means gate of the gods. And so this is a kind of, if you know the television series and, and film, this is a kind of ancient stargate for people to get up to heaven. Now the problem with the Tower of Babel is not that human technology is wrong. After all, Noah, from whom they claimed their ancestry, had been in the construction business himself. But in his case, the architect behind the ark was God. In the case of the tower, God is not even a consultant or consulted. 
No, this is a human being. This is a human project from beginning to end. And the motivation behind it is human pride and ambition. Let us build so that we may make a name for ourselves. God is no longer at the center. He's on the periphery. If at all, they will build a tower from earth to heaven. They take the initiative to try and establish contact with God, with heaven, storming heaven on their terms. It is the height of human folly. In the original Hebrew in which this is written, there is a play on words between the word uh, for make, the word for confused, and the Hebrew root nabal, which means stupid folly. As a man in the Bible, if you know the Bible story well, who, who was called Nabal, who was a fool. And if you read the story, you'll find he lived up to his name. Now, this pattern is repeated throughout human history. We see it still today in our world. People trying to make an attempt to reach up to God by their own efforts. Uh, later in the 6th century, in this very same place, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, builds a great statue, 90 feet high, made of gold, issues an edict that all the peoples on the earth should come and worship. And as we'll discover, it always leads to frustration. In fact, when you come to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 17 and 18, the city that is in opposition to God and all that God uh, stands for is the city of Babylon. There's this great picture of Babylon. But all of it is doomed to failure. So we read in verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. Now, of course, this does not mean that the Lord was ignorant of what was going on from his heavenly vantage point. Like some government inspector who was informed of the activities of a jerry builder and sent to investigate. No, the expression the Lord came down to see is used to indicate in human terms God's intimate concern about the situation. And what he sees prompts God to take remedial action. So human efforts are met by the judgment of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they begin to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Seeing the disastrous consequences, if they are allowed to continue unchecked, God intervenes in judgment. And his judgment is to separate the nations by language. Verse 7, as we've seen in the Babylonian language, the word Babel means gate of the gods. But in Hebrew, of course, it means confusion. And we, of course, it leads to our own English word, Babel, which means to speak meaningless nonsense. It is a meaning that survived. In other words, what has lasted today is not what they did, build a tower, but what God did. I've been a Bible translator, as you know, for the first 20 years of my career. And there are nearly 7,000 languages spoken in the world today. All of them are a product of what happened on this day when God intervened and separated people by language. We'll see this evening that it's not the end of the story when we get to Pentecost. Leave that for later on. The result is that God forces them to do what he wanted them to do in the first place when he spoke to Noah. They are scattered over all the earth. And this is the story of Genesis 11. Now, if the story ended here, the Bible would be a very short book. But the Bible is not a short story, which ends at Genesis 11. No, note significantly what follows in chapter 12. We have the call of Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 to 5, which read for us, in which, by contrast, the height of human folly is met by the depth of divine love. The Lord has spoken to Abraham. Abraham lived with his family in Babylonia, Ur of the Chaldees. Chaldees is Babylonia. Um, 
it's an amazing intervention that when human beings reach up in the height of arrogance and pride trying to reach up to God God reaches down to them in grace and love to reach them on his terms not on their terms um, if you find Chris Wright's book 600 pages too much there is a shorter follow-up book with some of the implications which is only 285 pages which you can get cheap on Kindle um, Chris Wright asks this a wonderful quote he says what can God do next after the Tower of Babel something that only God could have thought of God sees an elderly childless couple in the land of Babel itself and decides to make them the launch pad of his whole mission of cosmic redemption. One can almost hear the sharp intake of breath among the angels when the astonishing plan was revealed. Amazing. What is God going to do in the face of all of this? He's going to choose one man called Abraham and he's going to be the launch pad for his plan his story of salvation, his mission for the whole world. So against the dark background of the judgment of God, we come to chapter 12 and we have the wonderful, bright blessing of God. Look what God says to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now the word bless is a Bible word. It's a Hebrew word, Barak. It means to have all that God intends in his fullness for us all that God wants to offer to us it's a wonderful word repeated through an intimate relationship with God now notice what is promised God says I'm going to bless you Abraham and through you will come a great nation which will be the nation of Israel and through that blessing all nations on earth will be blessed in other words, his plan for the whole world will be fulfilled beginning with this one man. Uh, Chris Wright comments again, The call of Abraham is the beginning of God's answer to the evil of human hearts, the strife of nations, the groaning brokenness of his whole creation. It is the beginning of the mission of God and the mission of God's people. Now, very briefly, we're going to zip through the Old Testament the story of the Old Testament is the story of God's people that emerged from this one man. It is the story of Israel. It's a wonderful story of this nation that is chosen by God to be a blessing to the world, to be a light to the nations. A mission in which sadly they fail through pride. And you ask yourself, has the whole plan ended in doomed to failure? Not at all. Notice this wonderful pattern. God chooses one man, Abraham, through him a whole nation and through that one nation he chooses one person he comes himself in the person of his son to resolve the problem and from that one man we're going to see that the plan blossoms out to all nations of the earth the good news of Jesus for all people it's, it's a focus, a broadening, a narrowing, a focus until this evening we're going to celebrate a great multitude that no man can number of every tribe and language and people and nation praising the Lamb for all eternity. End of story. But we're still in the story. So when you turn to the New Testament, how does the New Testament begin? Well, it begins, if you know the Bible, it begins with Matthew. And how does Matthew's gospel begin? The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Matthew says, writing for Jews, here is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he traces the lineage of Jesus, beginning with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And Matthew's gospel, of course, is written specifically for Jews in mind, a Jewish audience, 
So when he tells the Christmas story, who does he focus on? Matthew chapter 2. Visitors come, foreigners, to visit Jesus. It's the visit of the wise men. It's a portent of what is going to happen. And how does Matthew's gospel end? It ends as we saw at the beginning with the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. With the words of the risen Jesus sending his followers out into the whole world. Now, we've come a long way in a very short time. Got a little bit more to say yet. Not a huge amount, but stay with me. You see, if we stopped here, we might think, wow, what a great story. That's like reading Lord of the Rings. That was a good one as well. You know, Frodo Baggins and Gandalf and stuff like this. But the amazing thing is, this is not a story. This is the story. The story that makes sense of everything. Life, the universe, everything. Human existence. And that is what we need to understand. And that is why we need to share this story, because we are invited to be participants in the story. And we need a bigger picture of what the gospel's about and what the story of the Bible's about. The late John Stott, who died recently, great influence on so many people. John Stott wrote this. Many people are rejecting our gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. They're looking for an integrated worldview that makes sense of all their experience. Today's world needs a bigger gospel, the full gospel of Scripture. That's what people are looking for today. So where are they looking to find the story? Watch the media. People are looking to find their fulfillment by living vicariously through soap operas. You watch what's happening in Coronation Street, EastEnders, Emmerdale. People are involved in the story. I remember beginning my, this came home so forcibly to me when I began my pastoral ministry as assistant pastor and my colleague as senior pastor, we were in a little village in Buckinghamshire and a lady in the village, her husband died and her next door neighbor was a member of the church and she said to my colleague, it would be good for you to visit her, to console her and to commiserate with her on the death of her husband, which he did, duly did, very quickly, being a faithful pastor. Uh, the next week, the lady next door said, you're in trouble with my neighbor. And he said, what did I do? I only went to pray with her and help her. He said, she said to me, I'm really upset with your pastor. He came right in the middle of Crossroads, <laughs> which some of you remember was a soap opera in those days. She was more involved in the story of Crossroads than in the death of her husband. So what stories do people involve themselves in today? Or sit in front of our television screens and we say, I want to be involved in this story. I know who I'm going to vote for on the X Factor. This is my way of getting involved in this story. So we watch an entity standing up and saying, this is so important. If I don't win this, my life will... Gracious me! Uh, friends, it's not funny, it's serious. Or we look at celebrities out in the jungle. And we follow them through and we think, I can be involved in this story. And how do you get involved? By sitting on the sofa and paying a quid to vote for somebody because you think you can influence the story in some way. It's triviality compared with the great story, the gospel story that makes sense of everything. Here's the Apostle Paul coming right through to the epistles now and we get to Revelation this evening. 
Here's the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Christians in the Roman province of Galatia. These are Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're like us, most of us anyway. We weren't privileged to be born Jewish. We are born from Gentile ancestry. And he writes about the gospel of Abraham for Gentiles. And he says to them, consider Abraham. Now, notice the words very carefully. Galatians 3, 69. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe, he's writing to Gentiles here, those who believe are children of Abraham. The scriptures foresaw, this is the story way back, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you know that Abraham got the gospel before us? In advance? The gospel, God's good news, was first announced to Abraham, a Jew or a proto-Jew anyway at least, but it was given to him as a message which was for all nations. And he was told, all nations will be blessed through you. And if you are sitting here in Charlotte Chapel, and you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've turned from your sin, you've been born again of the Spirit of God, you are a fulfillment of God's promise that was made to Abraham. So we sing the children's ditty. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Yes? It's true. Wonderful. So, are you a son of Abraham? How do you become one? Are you part of this story? How do you become a son of Abraham? Not by building a tower to try and get to heaven or reaching up and building a ladder to get to heaven by your own good works and by your own efforts. Doomed to failure, high to folly. No, you become a son of God and that means male and female. You can be a female son biblically. Through believing God, as Abraham did, responding to God's promise, and he's called through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the son of Abraham who paid the entrance fee to bring you into God's family by his death and resurrection. That is why the cross of Jesus and his resurrection are the key events in the story of salvation. Now Paul goes on in that chapter to make it explicit. We're almost coming to the end. Just stay for the final bit. The gospel for all. He says to these Gentiles, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ there is neither any longer Jew nor Greek slave nor free male nor female you are all one in Christ Jesus if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the faith and if by God's grace you were part of that family then you share not only in the blessing of Abraham but you were meant, we are meant to be a blessing to the whole world What Abraham was commissioned to be a blessing to all nations, we are commissioned to be as well. Final quote from Chris Wright. It's by you to get the book. Our missionary mandate. I have some reservations about some of the book, I must say, but the main premise is wonderful. If we are in Christ, we not only share in the blessing of Abraham, we are commissioned to spread the blessing of Abraham. The last phrase in Hebrews 12:2 is actually an imperative in Hebrew. Be a blessing. See, I began by saying, where would we start? The Great Commission. Actually, the first great commission was given to Abraham. And it was renewed and fulfilled completely when it was given to the disciples of Jesus. To be a blessing to all nations. To make disciples of all nations. 
to be involved in the story, not as spectators on the couch giving a quid to vote for something on television, but to be an integral part of mission, to be part of God's mission to the world. And this evening we're going to see how that is wonderfully fulfilled and how the end is already guaranteed and we're invited. We're either, we're, we're already participants. We are either supporters or enemies. And I want to speak to those of you here. I, don't, I know many of you, of course, but some of us just here this morning. Are you a child of Abraham? Are you part of God's family? Are you part of this exciting story of mission for the whole world? To make disciples of all nations. And we'll see in the... It wonderfully comes out in Handel's Messiah. We'll be celebrating Christmas time with those wonderful words. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. This is the story. It's what people need to hear. To abandon their soap operas. To join the great story of salvation. That's our mission. That's our privilege. Let's thank God it's so. What a privilege. Let's pray together.